listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography, the last for the year of 2012 in episode 122, I believe. This is, uh, of course, the RC podcast where we cover digital cinematography, and we'll be covering this week the uh, Hobbit in uh, Shot on Red, 48 frames a second. We'll also be covering uh, new lenses, looking at some stuff to do with, oh, I don't know, Red Ray. Uh, and joining me in the chair is Jason Wingrove. Hello. We're not sharing a chair. No, a separate chair. So it's important <laughs> that you know that. Don't have that visual image. I've got to finish the rest of my intro. Shush. <laughs> this is here's our role here on the RC to mine the news, filter the blogs, and go down some serious rat holes, and I'm sure we will today. Uh, Jason's been shooting overseas, so uh, let's get into the conversation and, and say, was it overseas, Jason? Uh, or? No. Well, yes and no. Uh, last three weeks I've been recceing for a shoot, TVC shoot here, which I've literally just wrapped yesterday morning. Uh, but but you in were... between recce and shoot, I went over to LA oh, and did yeah. the road documentary thing, which was fantastic. Absolutely was fantastic, because... It was a real crapshoot. Could have been. Could have gone anyway. We didn't know who our direct. Well, we hadn't. Who the director who won it and the band who won it were all completely, you know, random, and we didn't know how they would fit and how we would go with a band and a director uh, putting them together to make a documentary where neither of them is their English is their first language. But it was fantastic, and I've already seen uh, teaser edits of it, which are, are sensational. So I'm. Uh, blown away and happy and then yes came back and I've been shooting for the last sort of 8, 10, 12 days or so around Australia with uh, uh, yeah with my Epic and Underwater and Octocopters and not me scubaing but uh, highly skilled professionals working for me um, so let me work my way through some of that stuff because I'm sure people are keen to hear and also good to know because uh, we obviously haven't had a, an RC for a couple of weeks but that's no look again apologies for that because uh, we've been you know we do have um, what we see doco shot jobs in LA what was what the, what was the doco shot on uh, we shot on two C300s and I shot a little bit of stuff on my 5D and Phil Bloom used did shot a bit of stuff on his 1DX. I want to say his uh, larger larger body DSLR. So uh, and all cut it all How'd together. How'd you find the and, C300s? Hmm? How'd you find the C300s? Uh, interesting, actually. It was okay. It wasn't wasn't bad. It's really the first time I had to fully uh, had get to grips with it and do a bit of shooting with it. I wasn't. I was more you know mentoring than actually shooting, but I had a bit of hands-on time with it. Uh, it's not bad. It's got a lot of freaking buttons on it. It has got a lot there of buttons. There is a lot of buttons. I mean, it's kind of, I can't complain. The Epic, every time I pick up the Epic, I press some button on it. But, um, yeah, a lot of buttons on it. Uh, it's very good, actually. I came away being um, quite impressed with it at the end of the day. I still think all the ergonomics of the top monitor flip-out thing are a little bit unusual. But uh, it's certainly one of the... It's the beginning of the end of of having to deal with DSLRs and that form factor. It's you know one of the one of those many cameras that are shining the light to the other side. It, they are the light at the other side of the DSLR tunnel. There's still a place for them, but uh, cameras like this and bringing and the C100, I think, which is actually interesting. I didn't shoot with it, but I've played with it a few times since then in the hand and 
although I think the codex and there's a few things missing from the C100, but that ergonomically is terrific. The monitor flip out at the top, the viewfinder at the rear, OLED viewfinders, XLRs, all that sort of stuff. I think it's uh, it's very nice, and the imagery looks looks great. I mean, I'm, yeah, I was very happy with it apart from yeah all the buttons it did take a little it does take a, you know with all with, with all that functionality comes uh you got to relearn a lot of stuff and relearn a lot of muscle memory as to where everything where everything is and i think functionality they could they could definitely have laid it out better there's definitely a better way to map all those buttons have less of them and but just better more smartly assigned what but, lenses uh, are you using? it's the beginning what lenses were you using? We were using uh, actually just L glass. Actually, I, on my 5D Mark III, I was using some of my uh, just Zeiss ZE primes. But the main rental glass was uh, just regular Canon L Canon L glass. Really, all rented from Sammy's. Thank you, Sammy's. Excellent. And uh, tell me the. Um the upshot of that is this documentary. Where is that going to be seen or shown? Or uh, I guess it? it will be the there'll probably be some sneak or some trailers or bits and pieces coming out. There's certainly some work in progress, uh, like uh, like sort of video diaries or behind the scenes stuff coming out every few days here and there on on YouTube and just maybe search on YouTube for rockumentary because Road has a channel there. Um, the final documentary I think is going to be shown in Sydney f- well apart from obviously on the net it'll be Sydney also shown Sydney Festival I believe uh, where the band uh, Navicula from, from Bali will be flown out and play live I believe at the Sydney Festival and show the doco and yeah so it'll be a bit of a that should be good and I think maybe Nuno the director may be coming out there from Portugal as well so that what, should be what good what style was the band? it's kind of like the Balinese uh, kind of red hot chili peppers, I guess. So accessible, uh, not too thrashy and not too... And even though, uh, you know, probably 50% of the stuff they recorded was uh, in Balinese, it was still, you know, very listenable. And there's a bit always that interesting bit of English mixed in there, you know. There's always sort of a lot of non-Balinese words that are thrown in there. So, yeah, it was... It was I was hoping that it would be listenable, and it was more than that. And And the producer, Alan Johannes... Uh, from uh, who worked at Record Plant Studios. It was fantastic to work with him. He was outstanding. He was a great producer, had a real passion for the project. It was a great interview subject, and he had a real passion for working with those, uh, working with the band and wanting to get the real perfectionist and worked a long time to get uh, to get the best out of them. Pretty hard to shoot. Uh, I've done it a few times for shooting in recording studios. It's quite hard, and uh, every time we were in that studio... <laughs> trying to shoot in the studio there's three or four of us all walking around they're trying to record an album right we're trying to do a documentary but they also actually are trying to record this album there's these uh, i don't know what they were but there was these microphones um and they look like little tiny laser pointers there was literally like almost like little little like little size of your finger on two stands and they were literally maybe about 12 inches apart and they sat about 12 feet away from the drum kit and if we got anywhere near those, everyone in the control room just went apeshit and said, get those fucking cameras out of there. 
Uh, we were nowhere near these microphones, but these were some seriously uh, directional things that uh, you couldn't even, you weren't even aware you were infringing on their personal space yet. They were just like, you just went anywhere near that, and they just went apeshit. So it was kind of hard to work in, uh, you had to kind of work around the fact that it was actually working studio, just as much as if, you know, a band wanted to come in and record a song while you're trying to actually shoot, film something, you'd, you'd go apeshit. Uh, but it was... Uh, yeah, it was a great experience, and uh, I'll, I'll no doubt we'll tweet out uh, what I can, when I can, as it as it evolves, and uh, follow Road uh, on Twitter and and on YouTube. I'm sure. As in R O D E, and um, oh, that me, funny O D E. Yes. Yes, and tell me uh, this thing that you've been shooting in Sydney, or uh, with all sorts of cool gear. Yes. I understand this was actually scripted narrative. Yes, I know, a script. I haven't had a script for ages. I, haven't, I had to have a script and a casting session and um, going, going yes, old storyboards and... Hmm? Going old school. Yeah, going old school. Well, my whole year's pretty much been sort of a bit more reality-based and uh, uh, where we've kind of made it up as we've gone along. So it's been kind of like... Uh, a bit of a shock to the system to come back to what I've been doing for decades of uh, yeah having a storyboard where things have to all fit into 30 seconds and uh, yeah this shot goes exactly with that shot and this shot has to be this length and this shot has to be that length so no it was kind of good to come back to come back to it all but um, now, so you're have looking, a proper you're, crew you're and, looking very tanned and relaxed and yeah so I'm feeling very relaxed well it's really out, frustrating because we went right. to some great places and Barrier Reef and the Wit Sundays which I know you're well familiar with and to be able to go there and not really to go to some really nice holiday places and not holiday was a little bit frustrating but you always had a little bit of time to sort of jump off a boat or feed a fish or um, you know kick your feet in the sand here and there were we allowed to ask who your DOP was or were you sure yes you were he's awesome <laughs> was it you yes okay <laughs> yeah it was me um, it was one of those jobs where because it was so because there was so much to it and so much travel and so many scenes and it was kind of those one of those ones also that started off with that kind of doco feel and then it kind of got out of control so it kind of grew beyond the original budget so pretty much a job where everyone had to wear two or three hats there's you know my props guy is setting up a scrim and my dit guy is oh my my, my focus puller is 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 um helping with the props department or you know helping me with a little mini little jib move and Every you know, every production people are, are are dealing with props, and so my first AD is doing the slate at, while he's holding a scrim, while he's holding a prop, while he's timing the takes for me. So it was really a little, it was a little bit uh, under under crude, but you know that was just part of it. it. Was either that, or you just don't get to do it. So it was uh, everyone knew that you had to sort of muck in and you know do or th- wear three or four hats, but it was. Um, it was kind of, you know, it's satisfying still. It is definitely one of those last great team sports. Excellent. Now, I want to hear about using these uh, copters because, oh, quite frankly... Yes. Well, I've been trying to use them for a while yes, and had I trouble know, so to right. kind of... Well, save yourself the trouble. Skip it. Now, now why is that? What, what Oh, no, what look, I'm not going to go too hard on them. It was, it's, it is, you know, it reminds me of the old days, and you probably definitely would know this, Mike, and the old days of uh, motion control, and I'm not going to mention any names, but you probably know who I'm thinking of. I know of, exactly who you're thinking of. Uh, where you would just, technology that was not necessarily designed to be on a film set in any way, uh, where you try and mate up 
video transmission and technology and framing and light and focus and exposure and then you bolt it on something which is probably designed to do surveillance for the police uh, where they don't care about vibration they don't care about um, turbulence or wind or you know just as long as we can get something small and uh, reasonably quiet into a spot so I, I also to me i was trying to drag it kicking screaming into shots that maybe weren't designed for it i'm trying to turn us into it like a steady cam at the beginning of the shot and then get turned into an aerial uh, camera platform at the end of the shot and trying to and trying to do it in sunrise while i've got little gaps of light while i'm trying to position a radio controlled device in a precise point in time in wind gusts uh, with uh, very small windows of, of of light, with lots of um, with dialogue uh, and cueing and yeah, precise timings. It was all. It's partly my fault for trying to uh, make to to go beyond what the original script was, I guess, and but, go, but what, go the extra mile. But what camera was actually in the chopper? Uh, Epic. All right, so it's quite a substantial rig. Uh, yes, it's octocopter. Well, they don't call it don't call it an octocopter. Apparently, call it a drone. It, even though it had eight blades, they preferred it to be called a drone. So, so did the drone at any point look like it was going to drop the Epic? Never. You know, it's one of those things where you see it. We were flying off cliffs, like the cliffs of the Twelve Apostles, right? We're literally just like piercing along at twenty kilometers an hour, and just goes right off the cliff edge, and it's in up updrafts and uh, as. It, it's 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 very scary to see an epic fly off a cliff on 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 something that you buy in a hobby shop, a very expensive hobby <laughs> shop. But nonetheless, it was very. Uh, it's kind kind of scary to see uh, you know a, a chopper at altitude uh, that you know uh, an epic uh, at altitude over over a cliff face. No, but there was never any never any moment where you you thought this thing was out of control, and it was flying quite close. I mean, literally as close as we I was probably had it at start of the shots. Probably we're probably I don't know what six probably eight feet apart and ten feet apart, and I'd have it starting there and, and flying, taking literally punching a hole in the sky and be eighty feet up in the sky and in three three or four seconds. So it's uh, you know, and it's not you know it would it would give you quite a quite a pinch, you know. <laughs> It it hurt if it hit you. It's it's, it's not a, this is not uh, a small you know lightweight little thing. It's but it was good to play with it. It was good to know. It was good to know the limitations and know that I'd pushed it a bit bit too far. And uh, it's always good to know that this stuff is regardless of who's flying it. It is not. It's, it's not a toy, but it's not. This is not a Fisher dolly with propellers you know, <laughs> you know what i mean and there's not yeah. a grip with the precise marks you got to get it into position fire it up it's like as if you asked someone with a chopper to say okay the sun's coming out let's go up in the air you say okay hang on i got to contact you know i got to contact the tower we've got to you know i got to mm-hmm. get the turbos to speed and all this sort of cross checks and you are essentially these people are casa approved like you know aviation certified people so if anything goes wrong they are grounded for life so there's certain protocols of how to uh, how to how you know how to procedures of how you power up checking batteries all that kind of stuff so you literally the kind of uh, well let's just sit around till the gap in the sky in the clouds comes and then say okay let's go and expect it up in the air in position ready to go in you know as quick as someone can just button on the camera is 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 un, um is un, impractical you know it's not a device for run and gun and octocopter nah <laughs> not not <laughs> I, I would i would use it again but, but i would i would be very careful as to 
its applications and the time allowed per shot. It's like working on the water, you know, which I also did a lot of. Uh, you can basically... Uh, do, my first AD says it's a rule of seven, seven to one ratio. It, anything, as you know, Mike, being a sailor, a sailor, sailor boy, <laughs> that there is... Uh, a level of difficulty is uh, applied to any activity on the water, and it's about pretty much about seven to one, seven times as long to do anything involving uh, the water, be it under or over. What what, um, what was your underwater rig? Uh, was it was it any actually more successful on the chopper. Uh, yeah, it was fine. It was actually more of a surf rig. Uh, Lee Kelly, who's a sound recordist, uh, a mate of mine, who's a sound recordist in, in Sydney, has a like a surf underwater rig. They probably were only about. Uh, five six meters under the water so it was not a full-on dive housing uh and yeah just epic with uh like a 16 to 35 or 11 to 16 in there and yeah very simple just had a bnc up to the top side and i just sat in a sat in a rubber ducky with the with my little monitor and that and was your it. beer and your that would have been good holder. it is hard work i w- got out there and i thought everyone said Okay, let's go and spot the pot spot in the coral. Uh, let's everybody just get flippers and snorkels on there, and and just let's let's all just we've got this huge fuck off boat from like massive tourist hundred and fifty per person boat tourist boat in um, Barrier Reef, and we're all diving off there and and just snorkeling snorkeling around. I mean, if you were going to do it for fun, to, the, pretty much all the stuff we did. If you're going to do it for fun, it would be it would have been terrific, and a lot of it is, a, is a, would have been a lovely experience. But when you try and do it as a as as a filming activity, it's it's freaking hard. Trying to do a recce with a snorkel, you know, in, underwater, it's really hard work with you currents. Had, you had trying to spot. It's okay if you're just toddling around. Oh, there's a nice fish. Terrific snap, snap. But if you're trying to actually recce <laughs> and find a spot, this is a spot, and oh no, hang on, I've drifted. It's over here. Where are you? What? I can't hear you. And then we got ten people up on the boat, all the Prussian people who didn't jump in. They're all shouting, and they're pointing and going, please do not shout and point at me when I'm in the water. I don't know, what the, what, is there a fucking shark? And they said, no, no, it's just a turtle that was just near you. But anyway, literally 15 minutes of wrecking with snorkel and goggles, and I was absolutely knackered. Uh, it would have been an enjoyable holiday if it wasn't, uh, you know, if you didn't actually have to walk away, walk away with a TV commercial. So yeah, the the water and wind and spray and salt and uh, yeah, choking on <laughs> all the water out of your snorkel and it's a real this is real first world problems, isn't it? And uh, yeah, let's no, say that again. And um, what was the lensing on this? Sort of uh, the well, for most of it was all my hodgepodge collection of, of glass of cook of ZEs and uh, contacts and Takina uh, uh, 11 to 16s and uh, yeah just a real hodgepodge just all, all basically all my all my glass I was going to shoot it all on Hawk I wasn't going to shoot it on uh, anamorphic actually because I wanted to go slightly widescreen and I thought it would be lovely but we knew we could not get the hawks on the octocopter because it was uh, too they're just that just that much too heavy so i just went with regular spherical glass but uh that would have been good but yes yeah, just regular regular glass 
whatever we can get our hands on, just ZEs and, and um, L-Glass. Nothing too amazing. We just did some fun stuff. We were testing lenses. Tom Gleason is a DOP, who many of you may know of. Um, Tom and I, well, you know him because he's been on the show, uh, were testing glass to have a look at the Cine Canon glass. Yeah, right. Because what we were trying to do was compare the Cine glass with the non-Cine Canon glass, so a 50-50, but also compare the Canon Cines with the Zeiss Superspeeds. And then to give us a benchmark, because both of those are quite fast and newish kind of lenses, we thought, well, let's compare them all to Arri Ultra Primes because we all know Arri Ultra Primes. Though the Arri Ultra Primes, of course, are, are PL mounts and the Canons are EF mounts. But I don't think that really matters for the purpose of what we were trying to do because we were um, just trying to test what they were like and stuff. And um, Yeah. We had a, a really good time doing that. In fact, we're going to post that up on uh, FX PhD, FX Guide as a video just going running through the... Uh, the lenses, but the lenses, the primes particularly, are uh, beautifully made, quite big, but uh, gorgeous glass. Particularly is like the fifty-one T one point three or one point three versus one point two on the L. Yeah, yeah. Well, which obviously, which is an F F one point two. So I'm presuming yes. it's. I'm presuming it's. I'd love to see a side by side of that of the fifty F one two. Well, okay. Perhaps and someone will do one of those yes, one day. Yes, perhaps, we, perhaps in fact we've done exactly that. Um, <laughs> Excellent, because I'm very keen to know what's inside it, um, even though... And I'm really glad that someone has made, if, if that's the case, a because uh, I still think the 51.2 is a gorgeous... Even though it's flaring, it's kind of flat and it's unusual, it's a very quirky piece of glass, it is still has a really nice, interesting character to it that I haven't seen in any other 50, and I've got like five or something 50mm lenses trying to chase the, the perfect 50. Um, and for me, yeah, the, the, that 51.2 was great, but it's a plastic L stills glass, so for someone to cinevise that, if that, that's what they've done. It's actually more than that, um, because there are different coatings. Uh, there are, in fact, different numbers of blades on the aperture. Oh, and, right. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there's completely different gearing and construction. Yeah. So it isn't just that you're buying the same lens, because if it was, you'd feel a bit ripped off because they're actually considerably more expensive. Uh, considerably. Yeah. If not too much. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like about one and a half versus about four and a half. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's not so bad. I kept think. I always kept in my head that they. I always got the original prices they mentioned, which was like six or seven or something stupid. Well, I think we found the street price was like four seven. Yeah, which is perfectly. And I've got to tell you, the the L wide open because they don't have a thirty five, as you know. Yes. Which is a bugbear, but that is weird. The is it the twenty four, the wider one than um, that they do have. Uh, was better than the Ultra Prime, as you'll see in our video. Really. Yeah, sharper in the corners because the Ultra Prime, wow. It is going to handle a full frame. Really, wasn't designed for a full frame the way that the L series uh, fifty inherently is. If that makes sense, because it's designed for thirty-five mil. Yeah, and that isn't as big a, uh, a footprint to target as say the um, you know five D Mark three or two or whatever in terms of a full frame. So there is actually more um, on the wides. There is more uh, vignetting. Definitely fall off characteristics in the corners uh when you're fully open yeah um and so we did test that fully open and of course the sweet spot for a lens is in a few stops from fully open so we did that as well but we thought fully open was was relevant and we thought the ultra prime was a good (coughs) comparison i mean you could argue that (coughs) it's not the top of the line you know master primes but the thing Mm. about that there's such a big price difference there that it's really gone between the ultra prime and a yeah when you've got something that's 
So an Ultra Prime was like a compromise. It was not as fast as the Canon or Zeiss Superspeeds, but by the same token, wasn't as expensive and as sort of primo, mega, top of the line as a, mm. as a Master Prime. And, and I think that's a pretty fair thing. I think an Ultra Prime from Arri is about as uh, baseline as you can get. I think most people would, would feel that. Yeah. Look, I think... <laughs> I think I will still, or I will, there will always be, I'm sure, a camera that I, I'm happy to shoot with that has Canon mount. I don't feel, one day I know I'm going to have to get a, a set like this or like the... Uh, but these are, or like these are the, Canon mounts. Hmm? These are Canon mounts. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm thinking that you know, I don't necessarily have to buy you know, a set of PLs. I want something that I can use on a DSLR or these, but I will have to eventually move on from my you know, little Zeiss ZEs, just get something a little bit bigger, a little bit more professional and better you know with with better um gearing gearing ratios and and just better housings and constant um just larger fronts and just stuff that's a bit more a bit more grown up but uh it may be something like this but if they had if they added a bit more to the to the kit i'd be um quite interested once i if i so red's pretty much walked away from lenses right just saying that there are other people that can do a better job with lenses you think yeah, I think they have, and they've actually—I think they've actually said that. Um, and if you go and look on the website and yeah. you start poking around, um, there aren't a huge number of lenses kind of around. Like, for example, if you look at the Red uh, Pros, the Red Pro Primes, which I think um, are a bulky lens, right? But there's—I don't think there's yes. a lot left in the. Uh, in fact, I think they're actually selling them out I, I don't know that as a fact but i can just only see an 18 out of 25 that says five left so maybe that's because everyone's buying them for christmas but i think it's probably because they're just not uh not available for christmas much. honey because when red came out with them getting cheap good pl glass was a huge issue now there's a whole different thing going on right yeah because you've got a yeah uh, a cannon mount on a on a you know obviously an epic lens to start with but then on top of that you've got the fact that just about everybody on their dog is making good lenses and a lot of them much cheaper than they ever were before yeah yeah and i think also a lot of people that and and i hear that this was intentional that the uh red primes gorgeous as they are were were, uh, they are bulky they are big they're heavy and they were made that way to you know it was a conscious choice to make them this big, to make them look professional, so that yep. they were at that stage competitive to, uh, you know, competitive to, to cook, etc. So, I, it was I, by the way, I have no problem perception. with. I have no problem with, uh, you know, red focusing on cameras and not on lenses. Um, yeah, because you know that's a completely sensible thing for them to do, and I, I totally applaud them for making the Canon mounts in the first place. Because let's face it, you can't do this with an, an Arri Alexa. Yeah, and I think it definitely that has. Uh, justified other people making uh making canon you know making making pro canon mount mount glass so it's just so easy to move between your slr and yeah. your epic and that's what i do a lot yeah yeah and or if you just if you even if you're just using you even if you're not ever shooting with a dslr but to better put your lenses on uh, for wrecking or whatever to have to have those primes oh and just like, for stills I, like, I can't yeah yeah I, I cannot work. I'm going to have to go and buy a just cheap and cheap or 50 because every time I put my manual 50s on my Canon and just go shoot stills, I fuck up like 90% of them just because I usually shoot too shallow. And it's, it was always nice with a bit of AF, bang, fire. Mm. But man, if I'm just, even with an optical viewfinder, 
I can't. I just can't pick the pick the sharps. Pick you know. So, yes, good for good for physical semi shooting, but uh, not that great for. I don't know. Maybe if you're a rangefinder guy and you're used to it, and you've got the split prism thing or something. But Ooh, you know, I for, miss the split prism thing. I do. I do. I don't think so? you can get split prism. I for thought you like could, and you could. Day. You could put them in. Hmm. Hey, um, if you know of them, let us know because yeah. I'd really. Um, I would definitely. I put would that definitely. Put one in. Particularly, as I say, I don't want to have to go and buy just a five D Mark III. No, I want a proper good. Yeah, yeah, I'd love that. I'm sure some third party person, not Canon, will do it. I'm sure. Actually, isn't there something about the five D Mark III where you, the five two you can, but the Mark III you can't even change the prism. They can't even change the ground glass because of the way it's constructed. Can I say something? I picked up my. 5D Mark II the other day to do some stills because I was using the 3 for doing HDRs and I just wanted to take reference shots. I, I just I've got to say, I think we took a step backwards with the menus on the 3. The 2's menus were so clear and so simple and did exactly what I wanted. There's less of them. Yeah, and now it's like click, 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 yeah, click. Yeah, there's to get pages the upon pages. Pages upon pages of stuff. I think we took a step back. <laughs> yeah, there's a few steps backwards I think with the Mark III. But, uh, I still love it, but I'm just saying, you know, those, uh, I, I, that's Mark II is like a, I don't know, I was going to say like your first love, but, you know, it's like a... It's kind of like that, but less creepy. Like your first car that you just love to death. First car, there you go. That's much less creepy. Less creepy. I, um, so, speaking of Red and things uh, in their store... There are some new things in this store, not least yes. of which is a Red Ray player. Red Ray. We finally have a frick... Well, finally almost have one. Finally almost From have one? it being like 50 million different iterations and uh, been mentioned over... I don't know what the first NAB when they mentioned they announced Red Ray was, but it was a while ago and it played discs and it was about the size of a, a Wii. And it now, it now plays stereo and doesn't play discs. and Doesn't play any discs and doesn't even have an SSD socket. And, oh, excuse me very much. I'm sorry about that. That would be a text. Let me just put my phone on stun. Um, and now it's about the size of a DVD player. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And uh, connects up, obviously, 4K output, though it can connect to multiple separate screens um, yeah. and provide stuff. So it's, it, it seems like the ultimate pub playback sort of independent film play box. Though the, I, I would say, respectfully, this is half the problem. Because I think the other half of the problem is what you connect it up to. And I think that that's where the um, the actual projector from Red, which is coming, obviously. I, I, I'm yet to get my head fully around all the capabilities and all the, all the possibilities of this. I think there is so much here you actually have to get download everything and then go into a cave and be a... Uh, be a hermit or join an ashram or something for about a week and just sit in abject <laughs> silence on a pentangle f- uh, in the in the dark and study this. That's just the way my brain works. I would just have to have complete silence for about a week to really get my head around what this means because I've been busy in the shooting. I haven't entirely worked out what this what this means to us, but there is an awful lot here to, to talk about for sure. I mean, the problem is at the moment, uh, what are you going to connect it up to? Obviously, some people have 4K monitors, but not that many people yep. have 4K monitors. Um, in fact, not that many at all, really. Uh, the second thing is um, the stereo. I mean, I, I find stereo projected to be a much more viable option than stereo on screens, especially um, just because of the viewing conditions. We've discussed this in the past. So I love the idea that this can play back 4K, and I think that's just awesome. But I think it's going to have a stronger influence once it's hooked up with a projector because 
you know, if you had a setup where at a conference, at a talk, at even like a an office or at home that you've got a you know proper theaterette kind of room that you can do this in, and you can be playing back, um, unbelievably cool. I mean, it is also interesting that this sucker is playing back at high frame rates between uh, forty eight and sixty. So this is pretty future proofed from a from a new piece of tech so for a one o version. For a one o version to be able to do four k. Uh, with this really low uh, bandwidth of whatever it is, four megabytes a second or so, on the red dot uh, dot red not for R three D files but uh, red files. Yep. Uh, and to play it off a USB stick or off a USB drive, there's nothing more complicated than that on this. Um, that's that is as you say for for a Mark One device uh, or or for an SD card. Uh, a very simple, um, very much more simple system than what we had seen in earlier prototypes. Not even a display or a little readout on the front of the thing at all. Very simple. Um, yep, it's about six pounds. It's aluminium, so it's not sort of like a plastic cheap thing. I mean, I, I think something like this, you would need to have a reason to have it now because as it is so new... Yeah. I can't imagine that they're going to sell a ton of these right out of the gate. Well, even at the moment, though, because of the lack of displays, they are marketing, and wisely so, to uh, for uh, display, for uh, like um, um, point of sale, or yeah, yeah. for because um, you can get multiple streams, multiple though. HD, multiple HD I have no monitors. With the specs. I'm not complaining that the spec marketing. is a problem. I just think yeah. that it's you know it's not like every red camera user needs a red ray yeah. I'm sure other people would disagree with me but I just don't feel that's the case I don't feel I don't feel myself like oh my god if only I had this now I could make a ton of money in my company right yeah if you were doing digital signage point you know display uh, advertising pub, nightclub, uh, yeah, yeah tons this of places. would be you know in shop shop front shop fitting um, if you're if was your uh, advertising or your photography um, and, and also, I think photography it's an, window, whatever it's an it be. important thing for Red to do because it yes. puts a flag in the sand and moves us closer in that direction. Definitely. It legitimizes 4K and anything, as you say, that uh, moves the format forward. And, I mean, to be able to rig up some, rig up four HD panels and do uh, 4K across all of that. Uh, and, and you know, as you know, when you got a big display, and if you're going to be standing close to it, you want to have. And as we've seen, 4K is is a pretty impressive resolution. Yeah, but, but to four, run all of that, all those monitors off, you know, off an, a 4 HD cable is a professional installation. Like no one's doing that just yeah. because they fancy it at home. I mean, maybe yeah. they are, but you know, what I mean, like generally they're not. Yeah. Hey, um, and that also ties in with this uh, distribution platform that they've announced, which is a basically a, a deal to set up a way of distributing material in this uh, format. Yeah, I'm not sure what this means outside of the US, but uh, they've definitely set up uh, quite a substantial, um, uh, I guess you'd call it a fiber network, or I'm not sure what the distribution, what their physical distribution method is, but uh, Otomax is um, a comprehensive distribution platform for 4K content. And uh, when you're dealing with these fairly small files, as I say, four megabytes per second to do 4K, and uh, with uh, now what's the name of the licensing RN code? Or there's also a couple. There is so many pseudonyms and so many acronyms and um, uh, file names here. It's pretty hard. I need to head back to my ashram 
to uh, – But this stuff is sort of rolling out, right? Like it's starting in January and rolling yeah. out in kind of March. Yeah, but it's – the Automax is – to my understanding is an exclusive to uh, the Dot .red and Red Ray. 4K distribution. So the Red Ray is going to set you back about $1,400, $1,450, which I think is a incredibly reasonable price. Don't get me wrong. I, um, yeah. Though, you know, even a, even a bargain costs money. Um, it, it's going to be launched at Sundance, and I think that's exactly the place that it should be launched at. I mean, it's just a really yeah. spot-on... Indie um, film. Yeah. Legitimizing 4K for indie film and yep. moving indie mm. film beyond 1080p and beyond 2K. Yeah, I mean, you know, what film festival wouldn't be just thinking this hooked up with a 4K projector wouldn't be awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, development. And yet, by the same token, I, I have to confess, I've not ordered one. Um, no, I haven't. I think, again, I'm maybe heading back to the Ashram to find out how I can possibly uh, use this. It's a fun place, this Ashram. It is, absolutely. You could join, but I think that would just be distracting. That's not the idea. It'd be like the Monty Python sketch with all the hermits. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, but look, I think anything, again, that we've talked about legitimizes and pushes forward uh, the 4K format is, is, is good. But man, you generate some... My DIT guy while I was shooting away... Uh, was he? That's his. He does a lot of work. Where he's done a lot. He's done born identities and everything. And he he fucking hates read. <laughs> Says, "Oh Christ!" It was. We did about two and a half terabytes, or about two terabytes over a week and a half, with uh, literally only probably shooting one camera at a time, and a lot of stop starting. But you can generate an awful lot of data in 4K. You really got to want to. But. Uh, um, yeah. Speaking of generating an awful lot of data and 48 frames a second, yes, The Hobbit shot on red, shot in stereo on red at high frame that rates. That would have been a lot of data. I was thinking that the other day. I counted it at about 25 times as many pixels as a sort of a 1920x1080-ish sort of single camera shoot because mm. you've got... Uh, 4K or 5K, which yep. is obviously a lot more horizontally and vertically. You've got yep. two cameras, yep. and you've got shooting them double the frame rate. Um, it really starts to get up there in terms of uh, you know how many more pixels. Now, yeah. I should if you're point out for the big screen, you're shooting with a reasonably high or reasonably low red code. You're probably doing six to one. I can't remember what. Oh uh, yeah, shooting. I think they're doing a, well six I, or eight to one. I don't know. I actually know what they're doing because okay. uh, we went and spent a week over in New Zealand. And uh, and discovered exactly that kind of stuff, which we, uh, you know, were publishing on our, oh, I don't know, website fxguide.com. Oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah, that thing. Um, yeah, and it was interesting, actually, also, because uh, a lot of the discussion has obviously, and rightly so, centered around that um, high speed, and we will come back to that in one second. But the thing that I thought was interesting was the discussion um, that we had with the DOP. Andrew Leslie about the uh, uh, latitude he had, because I'd asked him the question about, you know, shooting digitally and you'd think obviously a lot more latitude and stuff over film but as he pointed out you had his uh, red epics at 800 iso but the mirror league rig loses a stop so that got him down to 400 iso then he's shooting at 48 frames a second so that halves him out of time again so he's now down to 200 iso um so basically he was shooting at a lower iso or asa than he was when he was shooting lord of the rings back on 250 or 500 uh, codex right back in the day which is kind of extending when you think about it. Um, but yeah, look, it's a, it's a monumental technical achievement. Of course, the big problem is uh, 
at the cinema viewing end where it's really polarised a lot of people. Um, it certainly has. Unfortunately, and I've been asked a fair bit what my opinion is, and uh, although obviously you've, you've um, seen uh, sneak previews, uh, Boxing Day doesn't come out till Boxing Day here in Australia, so I've yet to form an opinion. But wow, did I get an opinion from... Uh, uh, Vince Vince Lafaray did an excellent uh, blog post on comparing it all. He saw all three versions in one day. Saw high frame rate, and he saw two D like and three D filming, yeah, of or viewing. over a couple of days, or whatever it was. But anyway, and did an excellent blog post on it. But uh, you've so you you saw three D high frame rate. Yes, sir. Projected four K. Uh, yes. Yes, yes, but you understand that the post was done at 2K. Yes. Most right. people think that the post yeah. was done at 4K stereo 48, but it wasn't. It was actually a 2K frame that, that they were basically working on. Yeah. Okay. So, what did you think? Um, okay, so I, so I think it's a, it's a discussion that it's really easy to just make wisecracks about, and we've done a VFX show where we discuss it in some length. Yeah. Because all the three people on that show... Uh, had had a chance to see it, and we were coming at it from different points of view. Um, and on that show, we had Mark Christensen, for example, uh, really, is, you know, very graphically strong, does a lot of effects work. Um, we had Jason Diamond, who also works as a DOP and a director, so yep. you know, some interesting perspectives. <coughs> they hated it, mm. uh, basically. Yeah, they really hated it. <laughs> That's it. They the thing about it is that. People under the age of 25, maybe under the age of 20 that I've spoken to, tended to love it. Yeah. Uh, which I found really, really interesting. Because um, it's more of a high frame rate gaming immersive kind of... No, uh, I, well, see, you know, I'm... First now, person shooter. I personally don't think that's it. I think that we need to have this discussion after you've seen it. Yeah. But I okay. actually think that part of it is actually age. And I, and I don't mean that in a nasty sense. As I said in this other podcast, the, um, which you guys are welcome to listen to, the VFX show, you know, my tastes have changed, and I don't mean that from a aesthetic point of view i mean like literally i liked sweet things when i was a kid and i don't now i you know there are things i drink and eat now that i would find you know really horrible as a child blue cheese for example uh, most alcohols um tequila you know as a child i enjoyed a lot of no tequila yeah Yeah, so well i I can't drink whiskey anymore for what i did when i was a child i literally i just cannot (laughs) actually even smell whiskey having been mind policy drunk as a child on whiskey. Um, I had to hold my nose to drink it. But it was at Christmas too. I came home and I was so drunk and my mother had friends over, all my relatives. So a defined child. How, what age are we talking about here? Oh, well, under the... In, the double age. figures? Uh, I think I've I think broken <laughs> double figures. But don't forget I was a, a boy at a boys boarding school and boys will be boys. Yes. I'm not advocating chronic alcoholism amongst the... Uh, sort of prepubescent and young young lads. But let's face it, when you're younger, the object of the exercise is to get drunk. Like, yes. I wasn't drinking to be sophisticated. I was holding my nose to get drunk. Yes, as you do. Because everyone would just, at that stage, would have whatever it was. All was for $3 well, sherry. No, no, but I was having whatever was in the cupboard. <laughs> and my friend's place, his mother drank whiskey, so that's what we drank. Yeah. And it was Johnny Walker, and I cannot to this day go near Johnny Walker at all. I mean, I can't go any whiskey. I mean, seriously, I just yeah. tequila is my drink of choice, as you know. Okay, so my point about this is that um, I think there's some actual personal uh, chemistry stuff that's happening with your eyes. Yeah, um, and we discuss that in a lot of depth in the VFX show. So I'm going to say uh, a couple of other things. I think I really applaud the fact 
that they did this. Yes. Because quite frankly, I don't want to live in a world where you go, you know, we could do much higher frames like this, but nobody even can be bothered to try. Yeah. They um, tried secondly, it on a grand scale. They tried it. Secondly, there are sequences in The Hobbit that are breathtaking. And as we joked on the VFX show, if, if I'm not giving anything away, but mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a bit with some um, mountains. What's any more than that? <laughs> and there's... <laughs> there's Fucking and hell, Gollum, really? And Gollum. No, but seriously, if you put these bits together, if yes, that's all you watched, if all you watched was that, and yep. that was the whole film, you'd come out saying 48 frames a second is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, my God. Mm. And when you are in the theatre and you get to Gollum, I challenge you to be put off by anything because it's such good work. Now, that being said, I think the, the second the film starts up within like maybe three or four minutes, you're going to be like looking around going, I think there's something wrong. I can't believe that... Um, the, what am I looking at? The, do, do this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm presuming... My guess is... And I'm definitely not going to let it sway me. I still will be... The first version I see will be 3D HFR. And I think... Because that's what the director wanted you to see. Exactly. I will definitely be seeing it. But what I'm presuming I'm going to see is something that is hyper-real and too real and a little bit... Uh, and it's going to take me out of the movie, and it's going to. I'm going to see every crack and flaw and lighting, light, and I'm see where every light's coming from, and it's going to feel uncinematic. I guess is the the main word. Okay, so this is the thing. Uh, that, well, I mean, and I don't want to flag it. Yeah, but I should well, just we'll talk about you seen it, but, see it. But I'm just going to say this, right? The idea that it is cinematic isn't what the director was going for. Like he was not Just clearly immersive. going. Yes, he was going for this other thing. Yes. If you want it to look old school cinematic, shoot it on anamorphic lenses on film. You know, go that route, sure. and you're going to get this very. Which they did for many a film. They've done that. Yep. They've done three. But if you want to do some rings. other thing, yes. And you'd have to say, you know, this wasn't a case of a director saying, "I can just crank out another couple and, and cash in." Like this, is like really freaking hard work. Yeah. But, you really, um, really got to want to do this. You really got to want to do 3D. And you've got to say, this is a different film experience. Now, you may say, I don't like this film experience. But as I say, I love that we live in a world where someone says, hey, I think cinema could be a different thing than this thing that we just currently are doing. Let's try that. Do you feel the need to now then go see it at standard frame rate 3D or go and see it at 2D? Do you feel like you haven't quite seen the film? No, no, no. I, I okay. felt like I felt I saw the film. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's a it's a good. Didn't take you out of the cinema enough to uh, feel that you had you missed some missed experience. And you don't miss anything. <laughs> no, but you know what I Actually, mean. Actually, Stu you... had this terrific post, and I flagged it in this VFX show discussion. We should do it again here because it was so good. He did a talk apparently at NAB. I didn't see it at the time, where he took an image. It was pretty ho hum of a I think of a revolver, and then he progressively did things to it. And it all involved taking away information. So, for example, it went to shallow depth of field, and suddenly the gun stood out. Yeah. And then he graded it so that it was lit, and it stood out. And then he separated from the background more in terms of colors and a bunch of other things. And he just... And now I, I'm just saying the second hand because I didn't see it. He did a blog post about it. But what I thought was really interesting about it is that the beginning, he had like a ho-hum picture. At the end, he had a kind of director directing directed view of uh, something that was meant to tell a story and it was directing your eye as to what that story was and it wasn't just giving you everything to look around at. Now, I had the same criticism of uh, Speed Racer when they did that with huge depth of field um, and you could see everything everywhere. Yeah. Just changing the subject, sort of, can I also flag that uh, while I've been a bit down on 
stereo. I mean, I don't hate it, but I haven't been really up on it. I saw Life of Pi the other night. Um, oh, yeah. Ang Lee, the director, Which was in town. Which is very... Uh, hot, you seen it? Un- no, no. Seen the trailer a fair few times, and uh, yes, it's very uh, artistic. I guess. The trailer, a very one of the trailers anyway, makes it look like it's Fantasia, the live action version, and it isn't. Yeah, it's a flipping good film. I mean, it is so good. I can't believe how good a film that is. Mm. And I'm just speaking technically for a second. The stereo in that uh, is exquisite, and shot again. Uh, you know, post. with cameras, it wasn't post-converted. But was shot 3D. Oh, yeah, it was shot 3D, right. yeah. And, uh, I mean, Life of Pi, I'm not, I'm not saying it's better or worse or anything else than, um, than Hobbit, but I'm just saying, like, it was uh, something that I've seen in the last uh, short little while, and, and it just took my breath away. Um, right. I've got to say, Hulk is forgiven. <laughs> I'm sure he would definitely, I'm sure he even disowns it. He did actually discuss that afterwards at this uh, talk he gave about how he didn't have any reference for Hulk, mm. but he had really good reference for Tigers, which is why he cast a tiger and why they would allow nothing to be animated that you couldn't point at visual reference of, okay, see, a tiger did that. Yes. I want it to do that. Or yes. see, the reason that it curled its tail there is because we found footage of it curling its tail over here. Yeah. Um, Not doing anything un- uh, that a real tiger wouldn't do. But, but if you haven't seen Life of Pi... I mean, I, I quite think there are quite a few... I think Life of Pi, you're in no danger of not seeing it because it is getting a really good, you know, rap around town. I mean, there's just no question that, um, mm. you know, it's probably already high on the list of, of things that uh, people are recommending. There are some other really good films around at the moment. I mean, I thought Cloud Atlas was superb. Um, there's a bunch of good stuff out there. But, yeah, I thought Life of Pi was particularly, uh, particularly good. Now... That was actually shot on the Alexa, and it was using uh, Pace rigs, and they went to Codex. So it wasn't 4K, um, but it was just really well done 2K, shot live action, and tons of visual effects. And I think it's from that technical viewpoint that I bring it up, because both of those films are shot 3D, both of them shot um, with rigs that allowed them to kind of work that way, and they went to a lot of trouble, but also they have vast amounts of visual effects. I don't think it's really fair to say compare it to something that doesn't have visual effects because you know mm. and there's a lot of visual effects in Life of Pi I mean it's wall to wall on the water no no I definitely want to see it it's, uh, I'm keen to see how they can do an entire film about a mathematical constant okay okay um, and by, while we're at it yep. I'd recommend Hitchcock shot on the red mm-hmm. I think it's a spectacular looking piece of uh, I, I mean I just love films like this this actually shot on the red um you know, set like the stages. You know, the Red Studios. Yeah, right. At uh, so right I was like, hey, I remember that. I know that corridor. Right. Um, and again, I think that's a stunning success uh, as a film. I think it's funny, but also I just think great use of the red camera. It's obviously not stereo. It's a uh, you know, it's a narrative drama. Heck of a good film, though. And not at all. Speaking of red, I did finally see uh, Skyfall, which I think last week time the time we talked, you had and I hadn't, and uh, ah, blown away. Loved it. Did you see it projected 4K? I did, actually. And, and what was interesting was that, it, that it was at my local cinema. This was not going into town to see 4K. This is yeah. like the 4K installation is stepping up. And there's literally in my pl- 4K only a few months ago, we're probably only two or three places in 
in in in in all of Sydney or even all of New South Wales where you could see 4K. And now there's five out of the nine cinemas just ten minutes up the road from me in Hornsby is is all all 4K now. All starting ramping up for 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 Hobbit. What did you think about? Because um, I thought Skyfall shot in 2K looked magnificent in 4K. Yes. And I should point out Hitchcock yes. was shot in whatever it was 5K, I guess. Yeah. But then mastered uh, DI at 2K. Yes, you could tell it was more than a 2K DI in just in terms of sharpness. It was very, uh, even though obviously it's only shot, posted, I guess probably shot raw at two and a half, but post, but uh, 2K DI. But I think the last time you talked about it, it was uh, very um, lovingly upraised. It was, to 4K. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's a it's a really big eye opener how much 4K projection. Um, is worth it. I mean, you know, at a, at a cinema level, yeah. 4K projection is really worth it. Yes. I, I Even if it's just shot 2K. Exactly. Yeah. Or if you shoot 5K, do your post at 2K so you get the benefits of oversampling and being able to resize stuff. Yeah. And then go out 4K. Oh, you'd think, oh, that's a big 2K step down. What mm. a waste. I don't think so. Oh, but anyway, the way it was shot it was just was a brilliantly shot it was good film isn't it beautifully lit beautifully lit uh, astounding a lot of work there a lot of visual effects a few dodgy ones mm. but, but uh, not a lot mm-hmm. mm. but yeah loved it and very happy to see the return of a watchable bond <laughs> a, a, a non-crappy bond mm. what else should we talk about uh I don't know. Sorry, I've gone off. I've gone so far off my rat holes. I've like lost my place. Uh, you wanted to talk about these because you just, you know, it's Jason Gaffer tape at wide open Wingrove. Well, I wish I could tell you more, well more than other than just a few blog postings I've seen for the Vantage Ones, which is these uh, a full set, and I mean a full set, a large extended set, not just two or three lenses, everybody, and a set of lenses actually does include a fucking fifty or a thirty-five. It's it, this has gone well beyond it, but the Vantage One, uh, there's two two separate sets, coated and uncoated, of the uh, spherical Vantage One um, PL lenses, made by Hawk. Uh, Seventeen point five, twenty-one, thirty-two, twenty-five, forty, fifty, sixty-five, ninety, and one twenty, all T one. <sighs> which is amazing. Focus pull is freaking nightmare, and you don't want to always shoot everything on T1, but it's nice to know for some shots that it is there. To get drop-off, you will get drop-off, you will get depth of field, you will get shallow backgrounds on a 17mm lens, you will see soft backgrounds on a 21. It's uh, If you've got it, use it, uh, but use it you know, judiciously. But uh, I'm yet to find out from the Vantage guys and the Hawk guys uh, how many sets of these are going to be around? Are they making more than a couple? Is it going to be rental only? Going to be able to purchase these things? They're very small, very quite compact lenses. I'm not sure what the original uh, optics are. Have they made these from the ground up? I'm still trying to find all these things out from from the from the Vantage guys. But uh, astounding! I don't even know if this is physically possible. This is the kind of thing that would have made Kubrick's head explode. Um, uh, astounding, and to not just do a couple of lenses, but every single one across a very, very extended set to be T1. Holy shit! Um, me do want. They are going. They are. They are. I don't know what drugs they're on at, at, at Hawk, but they are just cranking out the glass anamorphic and uh, that does Hawk V, uh, the vintage seventy fours or something they're mm. called. Uh, un, un, uncoated, 
designed to flare the shit out of them, uh, anamorphic primes designed to give the classic 70s uh, blue flare look to, fl- to, to flare as much as possible. Uh, go and check them out. I, annoyingly, Hawk have a really terrible website where I see all these announcements of the amazing lenses and none of them are on their website, yet they're all on everybody else's. So, I don't know. Again, I want to try and find out more of these, but uh, the Hawk T1s, the Hawk, um, Hawk Vantage ones, just astounding. Astoundingly good. Excellent. So, well. A couple of other things. Uh, if you want to have a rundown on the um, uh, Blackmagic camera, Stu's posted a really interesting uh, review over on his website. Uh, yes, that's only only very, very recently, or just today or so, is it? Yeah, and I also wanted to flag that um, he gave a speech recently where he ran through uh, a bunch of uh, color grading things that he uses. And as part of that, people started going, ooh, all those presets you've got, ooh, 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 can we get those presets? Oh, for, for Lightroom? Mm-hmm. And so Stu uh, generously said, yeah, I can post those somewhere. So um, I think they cost, what, $25, if I remember correctly? Mm, his his or Lightroom $4? presets? Yeah. Don't they uh, no, $4? $3. $3. There Something you go. Like that. Yeah, Worth yeah. $25. <laughs> Only $3. Easily. What he doesn't do is give you the opportunity to pay him more than that. Yeah, I wanted to pay him $25. Yeah, I was happy to pay him more. But, uh, yeah, I just bought them for 3 bucks. I thought, oh, not even a, pre- not even a little pull-down option to... Uh, Give you a tip, or or just pay me what you think they're worth, because uh, three dollars is phew, a piffle, a trifle. Uh, if you go to gum.co slash lr presets, obviously there will be links. There are links on prolos.com. Uh, but yes, nice to have. Uh, you can't. Have, you can never have enough presets. Maybe you could pay more for a reduced set. Because there are actually like There's so a, many presets. There is a lot. That I don't know that I can really... There's a lot that I wouldn't necessarily use there. Yeah. I want the Stu Mates, you know, $6 option. It's that whole thing about, you know, I didn't have time to write a short letter. <laughs> it's, it's true. Um, um, I also want to do a little uh, quick shout out because while I was away shooting and someone forgot to bring a piece of uh, gear or when we did a reshoot, they didn't bring all the gear we had on the original shoot. So I was uh, three or four hours out of Melbourne and needed a EOS, uh, needed a Canon mount for my Epic, a spare one, so I could run um, uh, Canon Primes on the Octocopter and on, on my Epic. And I just jokingly tweeted, to which uh, Kyle Young from Inspiration Studios in Melbourne leapt to my uh, aid at midnight and got me a mount before my 4.30 a.m. call the next day and uh, really did save my ass because at the end of the day, the, the, lens I, the only lens I could have used on the octocopter would have been just a little bit too tight and would have induced a bit of vibration and would have been heavy. So, cut a long story short... Uh, I don't think you, there is anybody who would have your back more. And I wasn't renting any gear from him. He's this just is someone who here. answers the call. Yeah. So um, good on them. Uh, so, Kyle Young, Inspiration, Inspiration Studios, they and that'll be camera our, rental and production services. In that'll be our Twitter uh, for the for the show. Definitely. So, I'm just trying to find the... I think it's Insprint, I think. Oh, the, I thought it was... I thought you were going to give out... Kyle the, Young. It's Kyle Young's one. C A I L Young is uh, uh, he? Uh, that's his Twitter. It was a really. I mean, I, I didn't have anything to do with it, but it seemed incredibly generous and just totally. Um, well, yeah. I mean, if you were renting from them, maybe I could sort of, you know. 
Yeah. That would be more reasonable to expect that they would uh, sort of sort you out. But this was just a complete, hey, mate, I can help you even though you gave your money to someone else. Yeah. It's, uh, no, I was very, very, very happy and very thankful. I jokingly tweeted and someone just came to the came to the rescue. So very uh, thankful. And, yes, and a big, huge shout-out to, to, to the guys at Inspir- Inspiration and to Kale. Thank Inspiration you. If you want to rent... Uh, if you want to rent Epic or um, um, Alexa in Melbourne, I can't think of nicer and more um, uh, people who more have your back than these guys. Now, I should point out that as this show goes out, uh, they close from the 22nd to the 6th of January. So, um, you know, just so you know. And on the 6th of January, they will be starting to rent uh, the Alexa Plus 4x3. So mm-hmm. you'll be able to use, if you find some anamorphic glass, there's a, a, an option to shoot full frame, as in uh, Academy, anamorphic. Uh, yeah. And, and we should point out, they have studios, but they also have rentals, right? Like, there's actually two operations. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, yes, so... Uh, Thank you for that. Yes. Truly nice people. Dude. <laughs> at three in the morning, it's eleven o'clock at night, and you go, "Oh fuck, we didn't have this. Who, you didn't bring this gear." And rather than just, I just sat there in my hotel room, going, "What am I going to do? Could I drive to Melbourne? How am I going to do this?" And yeah, I didn't have to. Awesome. Well, look, that's it for this week, and I said, Jay, for this year, uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody uh, who's contributed, as well as you guys for listening. We really do appreciate it. Jason, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thank you, mate, and to you. Thank you, and to everybody who's listening. Thank you very much. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a less frantic for all of us year, and I'll, I mean, it's good to be busy. It's good to be busy, but... I think it's going to happen. I don't know, but I just, I, I, I feel I need to uh, get a few more shows out per year. So I appreciate everybody who, with their patience with getting these things out there and appreciate the fact that you want them, that you're happy to listen and devote an hour plus of your time to listening to the mindless Rat holes rantings of, of us. Yes. Now, we really do genuinely appreciate, um, you know, you guys responding. And, and please uh, continue. So obviously I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter. Jason is uh, Wingrove. Wingrove. But the thing about this is uh, we really love getting feedback from you and it definitely influences what we do so um you know if you've got a project you've got something uh, popping up there's no red room this week though um we obviously normally do have a red room and on most of those red rooms come from uh somebody twittering or emailing us about a project and we you know hook up and can talk to them and it's uh it's all you know basically uh sharing and collaborating because i think everybody benefits from everybody else so we appreciate it. We appreciate you being part of it. And I also want to thank our production team behind the scenes here, Matt, who edits it, uh, and the guys uh, like Jim, who helped me uh, in ways I can't even begin to explain. Um, yeah, it's really a terrific effort, as well as our guys in Chicago that handle all the servers and look after stuff and, and keep the business running. Yes, I wouldn't like to do a podcast if you didn't have all that back end. A lot of people do, and that would be half the frustration, and I can understand why a lot of people give up from doing a podcast. <laughs> I've come close. But, uh, yeah, I can't imagine trying to do it without all of that uh, and, you know, the website back up and doing the show notes and getting those out as well. It's, uh, yeah, phenomenal. Thank you all. Thank you, John. Thank you, boys. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you on the other side. See you guys. Have a good year. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.